Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Build Your Network, episode 130. Hey, this is Ron Carucci, author of Rising to Power and Managing Partner at Navalent. And if you want to learn how to be a great leader, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. You have the ambition, the knowledge, and the experience, but still lack those relationships necessary for achieving true success. Welcome to Build Your Network, your guide to growing your inner circle, increasing your influence, and assisting others in reaching their goals. This is networking the way it should be, brought to you by your host, Travis Chappell. What is up and welcome to the one and only show that brings you tips and tricks on networking from the best experts around three days a week. Although they may not all be in the same field, every guest that comes on the show has one very important thing in common. They believe, as I do, that building relationships is crucial to achieving success in life. I cannot wait to introduce you to today's guest, but first, if you have not done this already, please go ahead and schedule a quick chat with me. I would love to talk with you sometime just for 10 or 15 minutes over the phone. Um, head on over to buildyournetwork.co forward slash FB. And in the pinned welcome post in the top of my Facebook group, you'll see a link that goes directly to my calendar. And there you can schedule a quick chat. I'd love to talk with you sometime. So I'll catch you there or I'll catch you in the Facebook group. And now let's go ahead and chat with today's guest, Ron Carucci. Ron is co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record helping some of the world's most influential executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. From startups to Fortune 10s, turnarounds to new markets and strategies, overhauling leadership and culture to redesigning for 
for growth. He has worked in more than 25 countries on four different continents. In addition to being a regular contributor to HBR and Forbes, Ron has also been featured in Fortune CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, Inc., Business Week, Smart Business, and Thought Leaders. Ron, welcome to the show. Super stoked to have you on. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what you're most excited about right now? Travis, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And other than being excited about talking to you, two things. Personally, I have a brand new dog. And we it's been about five years since we've had a dog in the house. So it's super exciting for us awesome. as a family. Yeah, congrats exactly. on that. To have dog love in the house. <laughs> Professionally, I'm in the back at the research again. So I've, I've sent my team back into our big pot of about 15 years worth of data and about 3,300 interviews to go see what they might dig up and what patterns are there that we might go sniff out and to learn from. And they're due back to me in the, in the next few weeks with some probably hopefully exciting stuff. So I'm very eager to see what they come back with. Awesome. Awesome. So let's go a little bit further back here because we read through that bio and there's so many impressive things that we go through here in this bio. But I mean, to be doing this for as long as you've done it, 30 year track record, I mean, it's a long time. So when you first got started in this, was it on purpose? Was it on accident? How did that come about? Well, I was 12. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it was such an interesting random discovery. And I think I'm, I was very fortunate. I began my career in the arts. So I didn't begin my career as a behavioral scientist or an organizational psychologist. I began my career in the arts. I was working in New York City. And when all my friends would be green with envy at some of the jobs I was getting, I'd be privately thinking to myself, now I have to do the same thing eight times a week for how long? And I learned that, that I bored easily. Yeah. And that was frustrating to discover at 22 years old, but probably in hindsight, a great fortune that I was at early to discover that career was not going to give me 40 years of delight. So I left New York. I went on tour to work with a company all over the world, and I spent three years living in the Middle East. And the company that I toured with had a, a contract with the military and state department overseas to work with a variety of civilian government supporting and military organizations hmm. to use a variety of our media to, to do training and workshops. We were in um, Dachau and of all places at the chapel at Dachau. And back in the 80s, they didn't, we didn't have the term diversity and inclusion. But if we had, that's probably what this session would have been called. We had folks who were civilian and military Germans. We had Americans. We had American families. We had soldiers, a variety of folks that were being forced to collaborate and work together in ways that were difficult for them. And so we were talking about how they managed their differences. Hmm. And a young soldier, probably not much older than me, stood up in one of our discussion groups and said, in a very vulnerable way, I'm just so tired of being trained to hate. And I think all of us were taken back by his honesty. I was personally in the back of my mind taken back by the fact that anything I did on the platform would have provoked him to think that. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And I wanted to know more. And so afterwards, you know, you're in Munich, so you go out for beer. That's what you do. So we went out. <laughs> and I just was fascinated by all the things he was thinking and learning. And I think what I discovered, Travis, at that point in my career was that telling great stories was interesting. But engaging other people in their own story and helping them tell that story better, that was fascinating to me. That, well, I don't know that I could have named it at the time as that pivot, but that's where I, my career began to change. And I began to be much more fascinated in the stories of individuals and communities rather than telling a story. And so that began a multiple year shift into organizational behavior and behavioral sciences and eventually working with organizations and leaders. And I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate that in my mid-20s, that's when that happened yeah, versus right. discovering that in my mid-40s. So it was an intentional accident, I guess you'd call it, that I discovered that and have had a variety of both working inside organizations as a, a practitioner as well as outside as a consultant. I learned early on 
that you know ancient wisdom said you can't be a prophet in your own land, and turns out that's true. So in my time in large corporations, at the time my kids were very young, and I began to collect things that they liked because it meant more time with me. I began to collect severance packages, <laughs> and that meant more time with dad. But it okay. also meant that I was having to learn that the kinds of telling of the truth, the kinds of honest feedback that I was trying to give, because I, I genuinely believe people wanted to improve their performance, politically just didn't make any sense inside big companies. I think there are some people who are wired to do it, and I think companies now are more open to it than they were then. But I found out that what got me in trouble inside larger organizations got me paid well outside those organizations. And I, I guess I figured out that if I was going to try and live out my passion for organizations, it was going to have to be by not being part of one. So I discovered consulting as a way to be able to stay true to the principles I believed made for good community and leadership, but not having to be part of a, a political or right, right. culturally dysfunctional fabric of it while trying to change it. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is, uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is, is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Totally. So when you were coming out of that time in Europe and stuff and you and you got more into organizational leadership and all this kind of thing, all that kind of stuff, did you go back to school for that? Or was that just something you were like, I'm just going to dive head first and see what happens? I did go back to school and get my master's or behavior and human development okay. while I was working. I did it while I was working. And um, I was fortunate to be with a, a company that paid for it. You know, it's so funny in hindsight, I was in my very first role in a big company. It was in the energy industry and utility industry. And I had, I was there about five years and I was so fortunate for the amount that was invested in me in terms of certifications and my master's degree and incredible licensing and training opportunities to grow my own skill set that I was expected to give back to the organization. And I did. But I had no concept that that wasn't normal, right. that the 
dollars in investment being made afforded me with an incredible boss and a great team and all the incredible impact we were. I thought that was for the OD world. That was normal. And I didn't find out till later that how blessed I really was then. It seems like you definitely came out with some really unconventional type thought processes, which is why it didn't end up working out for you until you decided to like go into the consulting route. Is that something that you think you picked up in your childhood? Like where did that kind of outside thinking start coming into play? So I think, you know, as a kid, I was always fascinated by, you know, organizing human endeavor. I'd organize the stickball games. I'd organize the fundraisers. I'd organize community events with friends. I'd organize stuff in school. I loved the fact that a bunch of people could come together and do something that no one individual could do. And yeah. so I've always been fascinated by that. I think I've always had a proclivity to want to help. So I think the combination of those things probably were some early wiring that I, where I learned uh, I think I, finding my voice behind those things probably came much later. Okay. That's more what I was asking, like, because I feel like that's just a different mindset. So a lot of people would go in that situation and be like, you know what? Screw this. Nobody wants to listen to what I'm going to do. I can't have a career in this field. But you're like, no, no, no. These are some principles. Like, these are some things that I really want to get across that I think are like really actually very valuable. So instead of like leaving and choosing another career path, I'm going to stay in this career path, but in a different route and look more of the consulting. Where do you think that mindset came from? Well, you know, Travis, I think I recognized my own agency, right? So I think I recognized impact. I recognized that I was able to have impact. It just was much harder to do inside a company. So I did not want to have impact. I think when I left my first career to come to this field, I realized that it was because I didn't feel like I was having impact there. And I felt a great sense of personal contribution here. So I wasn't going to abandon that. Hmm. And for my own my own values and my own sense of integrity, why on earth would I tell somebody what they want to hear? I mean, even in my late 20s and early 30s, I recognized these guys and women are surrounded by enough people who are telling them what they want to hear. They don't need that from me. Right. And so I recognized there weren't enough people telling the truth. And at the, the very least, I feel like I, what I owed the people who were relying on me for help, the truth. Now, we can't blame all the political dysfunction of big companies. I think part of what I had to learn in terms of stewarding my own voice was timing, was a little bit of diplomacy, not political correctness, but certainly advocacy in a way that allowed me to make sure they knew I cared. Right, right. right. So just be in your face and edgy and check yeah, me like, out. Like you're wrong, do it this way type of thing. Yeah. And I think sometimes I probably didn't find that balance well. What I now understand clinically, when I went back and got all the clinical tools, was I may have been looking at a leader and to spot a pattern in his or her behavior that really changing could help them. But what I didn't realize was we may be six months away from them being ready to hear that. Hmm. I may have ground to lay, breadcrumbs to path, a trail to blaze to the place in their mind and heart where this insight can actually stick. But I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, oh, if I'm thinking it, they should want to hear it. Yeah. And sometimes that wasn't the case. How did you map that out? Like, what are some ways that you tried to get people to arrive at a certain way of thinking in the next three to six months of working with them? Well, I started by screwing it up a lot. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. By realizing, oop, they weren't ready to hear that. Yeah, that didn't work yet. That really defensive, angry look on their face is telling me that this is not going to work well. Or, you know, because a lot of apologies. And so that's when I began to realize, okay, but they're not dismissing what I'm saying. They're just not ready to hear it or they're ignoring it or they're getting defensive. So I was, I think I, what I began to spot was patterns of behavior to say, okay, there's obviously something wrong with what I'm doing. It may not be that I'm saying it. It could be when I'm saying it. It could be how I'm saying it. It could be what data I'm using to inform why I'm saying it. 
So I think that's when I began to understand that my voice needed to be accompanied by the right timing, the right words, the right measure, the right data, and the right motivation to make sure that it truly was entirely in the best interest of the person who was relying on me for help. Can you talk to us, speaking of data and that kind of thing, can you talk to us about the 10-year study that you did on executive transition and stuff like that? How did that come about? And then tell us kind of like what it was, bird's eye view, and what the results were. Yeah, sure. So it was started out personally, right? So after a very large transformational project we got to work on, one of the guys on that team, you know, more than distinguished himself as somebody with promising potential, with ability to certainly take on broader sense of responsibility in the organization. And at the end of our transformational efforts, nobody was shocked when he was offered the chance to take on a much bigger role. Everybody, you know, almost would have gone to Vegas and bet that he would have been enormously successful over the coming years and was headed for great things. When I saw his name in my caller ID about 10 months later, I just assumed, oh, he's calling to check in, say hello. Uh, tell me about the great stuff that's gone on since we parted ways. But what he was calling to tell me was that he'd been fired and that he was looking for some help networking to some other roles. I was shocked. I could not have understood what could have gone sideways here. And then about two hours later, the CEO called also to tell me they let him go and that he was kind of ticked and was infer more than subtly inferring that some of the responsibility for his failure was mine for not having better prepared him, which of course was devastating for me to hear. And so I asked, could we come back in to the organization to see what happened? I can't understand how we could have all misjudged his potential so wildly. Can we find out what happened? And he said, sure. And that investigation led us to the 10-year study because what we learned, Travis, was that it's been known for 20 years that more than half of leaders who take on broader roles fail in the first 18 months. He was just another stat. And other than the recruiters who love it because it's an annuity for them, if the carnage for everybody else is pretty devastating. I just could not understand why has this been acceptable? Why has this been okay that we, it's a 50-50 crapshoot? You know, you raise your hand or get tapped to take on a bigger job or you aspire to take on a bigger job and you shape your career accordingly. Why should you be rolling dice and have a, feel like you have a 50-50 shot of making it? This makes no sense. And so I wanted to understand why. I wanted to understand what are every landmine they're stepping in? What is every obstacle that is causing them people to go sideways? And more so than the, the risks on the ascent, what are the other 50% who are sticking the landing doing that it caused them to thrive. How are they being successful? And so the data was incredibly rich and revealing about, honestly, with the gazillions of landmines, organizations put in the way of these people, forget about the ones they step on their own. It's a wonder any of them are succeeding. That was my, <laughs> my really? first, oh my gosh. Wow. And then the second half was how delighted we were that the patterns of those who were setting themselves apart and sticking the landing were so unmistakably clear. But here's an example. We do it, and you know, this is great for networkers to really be mindful of as they're pursuing new jobs. We set them up right in the selection process. So we're still using the most unreliable device for selection decisions, the resume. Yeah, right? totally, still, yes. We're still using it as if it actually can predict anything. Right, yeah. And we're using it as if it is predictive. So we're saying things to people like, wow, look at these great technology apps you've built. That's what we need. Or oh my gosh, you've turned around Salesforce's twice. That's what we need. Or, oh my gosh, look at these supply chains you've integrated after mergers. That's exactly what's about to happen to us. We need that here. And in those statements, we send a very dangerous message. What we're saying is you have a formula. We want you to bring your recipe here and apply that success here. Well, what does that candidate now think they have permission to do? Come in without knowing the context and just slap on their success formula as if it was their mandate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, when it doesn't work, they just slap harder. 
Yeah, exactly. And the harder they slap and the more they judge the environment for not resisting, the less support they get. And thus begins one of the quick downward spirals. And we said that's just one landmine of so many we found like that, right? It's so obvious, right, Travis? But we do it every day. And candidates who want jobs take the bait. That's so true. So you did this 10-year study, find out a lot of just really insightful things like the one you just mentioned, and then you put that all into a book. Is that right? Called Rising to Power. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So Rising to Power is this sort of a documented journey of what does the ascent look like and what does it mean to stick the landing? And uh, we were very proud when HBR named it as one of the, you know, that year's ideas that mattered most when it was published. And the research, I've got a couple of, I've got a TED talk and a couple of videos on the research. And it was very heartening that the patterns we identified as success factors, as the things that people did to make themselves succeed, were so widely received and recognized as things that successful leaders ascending would do. One of them, not surprisingly, and I think relative to your audience, was connection. These people had amazing relationships that were authentic, that were trust-based, that were with direct reports, peers, with bosses. And that one of the most defining features of how they built their networks, of how they invested and prioritized their stakeholders, was people they could make successful. It wasn't the things they needed from other people. It wasn't what they could get from them to put on their agenda. But it was, how do I put your agenda on mine? How do I help you succeed? What is it I can do to advance your cause? Yeah, And that's what they were known for in their relationship building. So would you say that with, through the studies that you did, would you say that the ascent or the landing is more difficult? You know what I'd say is if you take, so the one thing we didn't do is we didn't structure the book around the four patterns of success because I didn't want people to think the book was about an answer. I wanted to honor the, the journey on the way up of all the different challenges people faced. But the reality is at the end of the book, we reorganized the whole book and say, okay, now look at, now go back and look at the whole journey through the lens of these four things. If you do these four things on the way up, that's what will cause you to stick the landing. So Sticking the landing wasn't because these four capabilities magically appeared suddenly for these successful leaders. It was because that's how they lived their life okay. on the way up. The difficult thing about me in the research was we did 99 regression analyses on this data because what the data kept saying was the successful leaders were good at all four of these. I didn't want to say that. I was like, well, can't we just say, like, what if you're good at two out of the four and then one you're okay at and one you suck at but you can get better at or three out of the four? And the research team kept back, came back and saying, it's not going to say that. We can keep cutting this up all you want. Three out of four got you in the failure group. Wow. So it's four or nothing. And I was like, oh, who wants to hear that? <laughs> Jesus is already employed. He's the one to call. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, exactly. But the reality, the, the good news was they're learnable. They were things like connection. They're things you can learn and acquire. You shouldn't wait till your first vice president assignment to start learning them. But you can learn them and you can build them into your way of life. And then when it's time to take on a bigger role, you're ready. Uh, really, really incredible stuff here, Ron. If, if you want to go pick up a copy of Ron's book, Rising to Power, go ahead and search that on Amazon. Check it out. Reach out to give him some feedback. So now, Ron, I do want to move the conversation to talking more about that one aspect that we were kind of just touching on a second ago, which is connection. Obviously, the show is called Build Your Network, so it's something that I really wholeheartedly believe in, regardless of what you're doing in life. Uh, I think that the majority of the people who listen to the show are more entrepreneurs, but if you are in an organization and you're trying to get into the C-suite or whatever your goals are, if you're a musician or an artist, whatever you're trying to accomplish, connection will always be one of the top priorities. That's why I have this show. So this is the first question that I ask people when they come on the show to get this conversation moving in the right direction. Ron, do you believe that what you know or who you know is more important and why? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I think 
understanding how to apply what you know to who you know, I think is really the magic. Ultimately, yes, in life, when, when you're a job seeker, when you're a client seeker, your network is vital. Having those relationships and, and cultivating those relationships, not just when you need them, but when you can contribute to them is critical. But at the end of the day- not just when you need them. Yes, I love that little caveat that you threw in there. But yeah, sorry to a, interrupt. Go ahead. It's critical, right? It's that people think networking is stalking. Right. I, mean, I know you just had, <laughs> yeah. and I just had my friend David Burkett on your show. He's got a great new book, which sort of debunking a lot of our myths about networking. Most of us feel like we're stalking and asking for things we don't have a right to ask for, mm-hmm. which of course is not what networking is, but it is the cultivation and curating of great relationships. And but for you know, if you're introverted, and I'm a high introvert, it's not attractive. We right. hate people. <laughs> so, and so, if you can reframe what it means. And the thing that I, I talk a lot about in my work is att- the issue of attachment, right? The psychological principle of knowing how do you, do you know how you connect, right? It's not about techniques. It's not about when do you give them the business card or what, you know, asking them, what can I do for you question? Mm-hmm. Or how can I help, you know, it's all that we have all this technique shtick. Right. We apply to this stuff and make that's, it just makes the, the feeling of being inauthentic and contrived worse. Right. But if you don't know your own theory of attachment, your own proclivity for how you, what are the psychological ways you connect with others, right? And attachment goes back to our childhood, right? We learn attachment in our earliest primary relationships. And if you don't understand, how do you do vulnerability without being manipulative? How do you do curiosity without ignoring boundaries? How do you show empathy without being having to be the hero and rescue people? How do you show delight in somebody else without idolizing them, making them feel put on a pedestal? How do you show courage and say hard truths without showing that you need to be adored? How do you offer the what you know without being so emotionally detached that you have to, that you start with the expert, right? That's right. why I think there's a false binary in your question. Expertise without attachment, without relationship is just wisdom, which is knowledge, right? Relationship without wisdom is just friendship, right? right? So I think it's how do you blend what you know and the way you attach to who you know that really makes the magic of networking. And I think so often we don't teach people what it means to build a relationship, what it means to connect with somebody and understand that that connection is made up of very sophisticated psychological, emotional, spiritual, intellectual, connective tissue that you actually have to design. Mm -hmm. It's not about chemistry. I hate that word. We had no chemistry. Well, that's because you brought the wrong chemicals. (laughs) <laughs> and so if you want to create chemistry, you have to know your audience. You have to know who it is you're connecting to. You have to know what defines connection for them. And you have to know how it is you connect. So does that just come from an insane level of self-awareness? Like you asked a lot of little questions there earlier. Like how do we know you know, how to show empathy or how do we know how to show curiosity without crossing boundaries? Like how do we know those things? Is that just like you on a level of self-awareness for yourself? Or is that you connecting with that person to try to get to know what their boundaries are? Like what does that look like? It's all of the above. It's certainly knowing, like knowing your own self, right? So understanding what triggers you. So I know that certain kinds of people push my buttons. Well, do you know why those why those triggers are not random? So do you know what those triggers are? So there's a lot of your own self-work you have to do. But then there's also, how do you study other people? How are you a student student of others? How do you notice patterns in other people's behavior individually or for, from certain kinds of organizations or certain, certain kinds of engineers have patterns of relating that are different than salespeople's patterns of relatings? Right. Do you build your pattern library and do you draw from it so that you're observant? And then can you adapt accordingly? So it is certainly a lot of self-knowledge, but it's also a lot of people knowledge. And mm-hmm. you can read about this stuff, right? You can do work to learn it. But just showing up and hoping that we click, why would that work? Right. Or I just didn't feel trust for that person. Well, really? Well, how do you know they trusted you? And <laughs> Maybe so, that's why you felt like you didn't trust them. <laughs> I love that one. When I ask people, what decides whether you trust people? 
and uh, they'll have an answer. Well, I use the, it's their personality or it's their competence or it's their actions matching words. It's their integrity or it's their how like me they are. We all trust is a currency, right? Mm -hmm. We all have currencies we trade in for trust. The problem is we then project those currencies into other people. So if I extend or withhold trust based on someone's personality style, and someone else, that same person is extending and withholding trust toward me based on my competence. Yeah, I'm going to try and earn their trust based on how I give it, which they don't give a crap about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't know, you can always ask. I think it's one of the most powerful questions you can ask somebody at the right time as a relationship unfolding is, tell me how I earn your trust. How does somebody in your inner circle earn their way there? Hmm. Not saying I want to, just saying that if, if I had the opportunity, I'm going to make sure I do it right. Hmm. It's a very respectful question and people love to answer it because it shows that you're trying to respect boundaries. You're trying to not be manipulative. You're making it very clear that you're trying to establish a relationship and you want to do it on terms that make sense to that person. And you can just ask for the answer and they'll tell you, I need to know you're good at your job. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's up to you to prove that obviously, and actually build that relationship in a real and genuine way as well. Exactly. Which I have to already understand. It's not going to happen in one conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So me now whipping out all my credentials in the next sentence, probably a dumb move. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There was one thing that you were just talking about that I kind of want to go a little bit further into. When you are having these conversations with people, you say that people is the thing that you need to get better at. What is the number one way to get better at that? Would you say it's just like, is there like some psychology resources that you would recommend? Or is it just like, you know what, you just got to get in front of more people. And that's how you get better at reading people. There's a bunch of ways. Read anything by Manfred Kett DeVries. You know, he's one of the forefathers of bringing the clinic to the table. Hmm. Certainly go to a therapist, go and be in a therapeutic environment where you are learning about your own triggers, where you're likely to experience transference, where you're likely to project and just learn the basics of your own wiring and never assume that you know. And then practice, right? So there's lots of emotional intelligence, all the Goldman stuff out there. There's lots of great technique. I think his 12 principles, the 12 aspects of IQ are really great. There's an instrument. The ESCI is a multi-rater tool. You can get other people to give you feedback on your self-awareness, on your emotional management, on your relationship building skills. And so you get the self and other oriented feedback. Get that data. Take that instrument and get people to give you feedback on it. And that way you get other eyes on you. We're naturally bad observers of our own reality. So assuming that your intentions and your impact always match is just arrogance and dumb. You need other eyes on you to be telling you truthfully where you connect well and where you don't. So I would say it's a like any virtuoso musician or any star athlete, they're working numbers of muscles. And pianists play scales and they also exercise their fingers and lift weights with their hands and they listen to music and they do yoga. I mean, there's people, so people, there's a variety of disciplines. If you really want to master the art of great connectivity and great relationship building, there's a variety of things. But I think one of the most dangerous things I hear people do, Travis, is they just rely on, well, I'm a nice guy. Or I'm a nice person. Right, right. I'm a good person. You know, why would they misattribute my intentions? What you see is what you get. Or worse, they just think that ought to be enough. Hey, we don't click, we don't click. And I just, the amount that people leave to chance. Right, right. And you're cutting yourself short too. I mean, if you're not going to connect with everybody who's not like you, then you're leaving a lot of different cultures, a lot of different contexts, a lot of different perspectives and people who see the world differently than you are. You're leaving all of that stuff on the table, which is how we ultimately grow faster and more anyway. So you should make an effort to try to connect with people that are outside of 
the same personality type or same industry that you're in. That's something that David Burkus and I did. I talked about quite a bit on, on our episode together was filling those structural holes and connecting on purpose with people that may be yeah. different from you or maybe in a different industry and different things like that too. Well, I think here's the reality. If you claim you believe that relationship building is a vital aspect of your professional work and yet leave that much of it to chance or invest so little in it or rely on superficial things like people liking you or being nice or your authenticity will carry every day or you know you're charming or maybe you're beautiful. Maybe you know you're physically very attractive and that's a thing, right? And you leave it to all that to carry the day then you're really belying that you value relationships because that's not, I mean, would you say that if you were in a marriage, would you say, Hey, I told you I loved it when we got married. That's enough. Right. You know? Right. So anybody who's married or in a, any kind of long-term relationship or long-term friendship knows it is a lot of work and no, your networking relationships are not the same as your marriage, but by the same token, if they're really important relationships and you really want to invest in them, you do more than just show up and be nice. Yeah. There's so much awesome stuff we talked about so far today, Ron. We need to move on to the last segment here because we're running out of time. Something yeah. I like to call the random round. Just a few really quick random questions with some quick random answers. You ready? Mm-hmm. Sure. This is the random round. What profession other than your own do you think it would be fun to attempt? Restaurant touring. I'd love to own a restaurant. If you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Alvin Toffler, the futurist. I just was such an admirer of his work. I just would have loved to ask him lots of questions about how his brain worked. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? Videos and blogs and books. What is a blog that you read often and a book that you've read recently that you'd recommend? I love um, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, Barker's blog. A recent book that I read that I loved was The Culture Code by Quill. It was great. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. So down the hall from my office in the kitchen, where we have our conference room and the coffee stuff, I have a collection of mugs. And those mugs are from all over the world, from all different kinds of experiences I have with people that are really important to me. And when I pick the mug in the morning, it's sort of like a virtual coffee with somebody special for me. And it reminds me to be grateful for those experiences or grateful for those people in my life and helps me begin my day by reminding myself that I'm not the only one in the story, that I'm part of a much bigger story and helps me center my day around something that I'm thankful for, someone that I'm thankful for, not you know the 8,000 calls or things I have to, my to-do list is not defining my life that day. What is your go-to pump up song? <laughs> a group called Sidewalk Profits. The song is called Live Like That. What is something that you're just not very good at? Gosh, that's a long list. <laughs> Ironing, <laughs> Ironing is a really disaster one. <laughs> oh, and organizing piles of paper. <laughs> ah, definitely share that one. What, as we get everything wrapped up here, Ron, is one place online where we will be able to find you the most. So come visit us at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T dot com. Got videos, blogs. We have a quarterly magazine left to give you. It's free. We have a great ebook that's free. If you come to navalent.com slash transformation, gives you our playbook on how we lead transformational change. Bunch of stuff in there on relationships as well. So that's the best place to find me, but also on Twitter at Ron Carucci and on LinkedIn as well. So awesome. love to keep networking with you. 
Awesome. Perfect. Perfect. So if you want more from Ron, which obviously has a ton of knowledge and a ton of experience to share, go ahead and check out his website, navalent.com. And uh, you can find everything about Ron right over there. Ron, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Had a blast chatting with you. Travis, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of Build Your Network. Your next step is to visit byn.media slash FB to join in on our Facebook group for more personal engagement, proven strategies and tactics to reach your ultimate goals. That's byn.media forward slash FB. Remember, you're only one connection away. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.